0: Here's an advert before we start this week's episode of Book Shambles. Space Shambles is coming to the Albert Hall on June the 15th. I'll be with Chris Hadfield co-hosting with an enormous number of special guests, some excellent secret bands and comedians, some of whom will be announced, some of whom will remain secret until the night. And there are hundreds of tickets for under £10 too. This is just a one-off event. So June the 15th at the proper Albert Hall. Yeah. Ridiculous, isn't it? It's exciting. <laughs> Welcome to uh, Book Shambles Extra, coming from backstage of the Stand Comedy Club in Edinburgh, uh, where I'm with um, Ian Rankin. Right, so we've just been talking about the Great American Novel. <laughs> while we were, uh, while I was having my lime and soda, um, what are the novel? What to you is a Great American Novel? Um,
1: Catch Twenty Two is a Great American Novel. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a. It's a- An albatross that hangs around the neck of American writers because every American novelist is supposed to produce or try and produce the great American novel. I mean, it's been going since the 50s, the 60s. I mean, John Dos Passos had a go. Um, Heller had a go. Roth had a go. Mostly blokes. Now, I think about it, it's a blokey pursuit, isn't it, the great American novel. Um, The great North American novel has probably already been written by Margaret Atwood, but nobody knows because she's Canadian.
0: So what do you think is her greatest... uh...
1: Well Handmaid's tale at the moment, you would think mm. would be the one I mean Oryx and Craig, I think in the future might be lauded above even that, but I think she's just a very challenging writer who is also i mean she's manages to be intelligent, readable, clever, um quirky, dark funny,
0: she just she, there's nothing she can't do. See, that's it. she's an interesting example of, we were talking, another thing we were talking about before we started recording this, which is about science fiction, and even though now it's kind of revered more than it was, I think still there is a sensation that, ah, but science fiction's not as good as some, um, you know, drab, grumpy novel in which nothing much happens and uh, someone eventually dies of a very slow disease. But Margaret Atwood is also someone who writes in the science fiction genre, and is you know is it almost not people just go oh oh no it is science fiction we won't mention that part of it no you know what's really clever if you're a literary novelist
1: people say it's dystopian it's not science fiction it's dystopian that's that's the clever thing there it's just a fine line isn't it a fine line um and she's very good at the dystopian novel i mean it's almost as though this stuff is happening right now right here but it just happens to be slightly in the future um She's, I mean, I, I've met her a few times, bless her, and she's, very, she's much funnier than you think she's going to be. She's got that public image of being quite harsh and, and serious and everything else. But I've had some cracking conversations with her, and her husband's a bird watcher, which is lovely.
0: She writes, I, I've read her, her, there's two collections of essays that I've read. Okay. Just moving the microphone there. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Oh. Are you sure that's
1: going yeah. uh, to... That he's gonna now placing on. the microphone on top of a box of slides.
0: Yeah, a box, not really of slides. but Should I, I just hold of... it, maybe? Let's just try the... it there. Let's really? See how that's gonna...
1: Okay, I'm going to put my hand Let's here, just in case it falls
0: over. No, because right. then if you put your hand there, you're right in front of the mic again, oh. so it's made no, no difference. Oh. So, uh, another thing that we were just talking about as well which is uh the death of the novel this weekend the the two days ago uh before this conversation will self was all over the press as uh, saying the novel's over and, and done with it but uh, is it
1: it's a fantastic marketing tool you know um every time will god bless him has a new novel out, uh he talks about the death of the novel um is it? No. I mean, what he was saying was it's been a long time since there's been a water-cooler moment, a novel that has made people go, you know, you're going to work and everybody wants to talk about this book. Nowadays, you might be talking about a TV show or a film or a piece of music, but you wouldn't necessarily talk about a book. But he's talking about a certain kind of book. These water-cooler moments still exist. They exist for things like Fifty Shades. They exist for things like Gone Girl and Girl in a Train. There's a whole welter of books out there, not all of them fiction, that people still feel compelled to discuss with her friends, to talk about online. Um, but, you know, he's talking about a specific ing-lit male um, novel. He's talking about him and Martin Amos, basically, and saying we don't get talked about as much as we used to. And I like Will. I mean, I think he's fantastic. I interviewed him once about um, Robert Louis Stevenson for a documentary. And we were up in his tiny wee office, which is at the top of his house in, in London, and it completely covered in post-it notes. And one of the post-it notes only said in it Haydn's nasal polyp. And I was able to say to him, I know something about that. Because um, I'd been looking into the life of um, a Scottish doctor who might have been the template or one of the templates for Dr. Jekyll, as in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And Dr. Hunter, as in the Hunterian Museum, had premises in London and his wife was a member of the establishment. And she would entertain people in the front room, like Haydn, the composer who lived around the corner, while her doctor, husband, was in the back room carving up bodies. And when he found out that Haydn had a nasal polyp, he said, I can get rid of that for you, mate. Come into the back room. And Haydn said, no, I'm OK.
0: <laughs> now, bringing that up in the Hunterian as well, I pre- have you read The Butchering Art? Yes. I thought you might have done. Fantastic.
1: What's really intriguing to me is there were two Dr. Hunters. They were brothers. One was based in Glasgow, one based in London. There are two Hunterian museums, the one in London the one in Glasgow, both set up by these individual brothers. But the one in London is fascinating because his premises were on Leicester Square, which is pretty much where Dr. Jekyll says his lab is, and he bought it from, a, from another doctor. So Robert Louis Stevenson must have known the, the story of Dr. Hunter. And Hunter was incredible. He would be... You know, he would be hanging out with body snatchers. He needed bodies. And he would bring in the bodies in the back way, sort of by Charing Cross Road, bringing the bodies in by dead of night. Uh, and meantime, on Leicester Square, where the front of the house was, his wife would be entertaining. And there was one guy he was after called the Irish Giant. This guy was so tall that he could light his pipe from a street lamp without having to tip- go on tiptoe. He was like seven feet something tall. And he knew he was a perfect medical specimen. Um... And so he was worried that when he died, the body snatchers would get him. So he actually paid extra money to um, the, the funeral parlor to say, when I'm dead, please make sure I do get buried. But Hunter outbid him. And so what was buried was a big coffin full of stones. And the Irish giant's body went to Leicester Square and was eventually dissected by Dr. Hunter. And the only way people knew about it was that he had a portrait painted of him, Dr Hunter, and in the background was this huge skeleton hanging from the ceiling. And that was the Irish giant. Isn't that great? I love these stories. The you problem you, with that well, is you, you couldn't make it up.
0: But Well, is that one of the things, because the butchering art, which in fact there will be a book shambles with, with uh, Lindsay who, who wrote it, which is filled with the, the, the no-nose club and the cemetery club and some incredible moments of sucking pus out of the neck wound of someone who's being operated on. But is that one of the... I mean. You must sometimes, are you drawn towards ever thinking maybe the historical novel? Would you, do, would you, you go towards historical fiction?
1: No, I've, I did a couple, a long, long time ago um, for radio, BBC Radio 4, I did a couple of um, historical dramas set in 18th century Edinburgh. Um, and that was fine because I didn't need to do the research per se because the listener does that for you. Mm. 1784 Edinburgh. And then just a chiming clock and that's all you need. And a cockerel crowing. Um, to do it as a novel I would have to know how many buttons were in a coat at that time how, did you have buckles in your shoes or laces um, how much was a, a pint of ale how much was it did people eat or what did they eat did they eat oysters did they eat bananas I've no idea I'd have to do all that research and that would slow down my rate of production <laughs> so that's why I don't do it and there's always if you write historical fiction there's always somebody waiting in the wings to say yeah I think you'll find they had two holes in their shoes at that time not three
0: but that's I suppose. Yeah, for the, the pedantry, I can imagine is one of the uh, the hard. You always see that with with British uh, with BBC TV, where someone goes, "That lamp wasn't invented till two years later." It's but the then bus, again,
1: the Routemaster bus.
0: Yeah, and then there's another side to it. That, that if you're that bothered about the. M- bus or the lamp being two years after that you can't be that into the story in the first place no I know because you don't care otherwise do you no there was
1: a friend of mine who was a big fan of Freddie Forsyth and in one of his books he has a phone box outside of Tesco and Chipping Norton or somewhere and she said there is no phone box outside the Tesco and Chipping Norton and she couldn't read his books I just yes. thought, that's kind of ridiculous but, but you know writing about contemporary Edinburgh I've got that problem all the time you know there are times when I need to invent a place a part of town a thing that's happened and people say but that isn't there or that you know that's never been there that's been over the road and I go yeah but for my book it needed to be like that
0: so did you have to change for instance a lot of the routes during the uh elongated and agonizing uh building of the tram system did you find the book hang on yeah. a minute he wouldn't have been able to go down that way Rebus, as
1: far as I know Rebus has never taken a tram I've not taken a tram I've never been in a tram um, but yeah I mean all that stuff about a real city you've got to oh well I better put in about the parliament I better put in about the tram system I better put in about this and that and I can tie it down a bit but it's, but it's lovely as well because readers then come to Edinburgh and they go oh my god the Oxford bar is real Rebus's police station is real that you know these places are real places and so they start to get that suspension of disbelief they start to think that even the fiction uh, could be happening and so they become much more involved in the story
0: that is a, that. That ability of certain. There are certain cities. Manchester, I remember. Also around, for instance, Earl's Court. Once I'd read Hangover Square, Earl's Court becomes very different. You know, things that were previously bland. <laughs> uh, that, that interesting bit of the fictional psychogeography. I mean, beforehand we were talking a little bit about Alan Moore's uh, Jerusalem, and there is that thing that after I finished that book the first time, that I went back to Northampton, it felt quite frightening because he has a block universe existing and it is filled with the ghosts of thousands of years and mm. um, you begin to see them. I mean that's yeah. a
1: Yeah, and you've got layers. I mean this is the thing you get with psychogeography in the novel and in nonfiction is that you start to see the layers that we're we're just another accretion. That our civil our generation, this part of time is another accretion. But there's all these accretions on top and the accretions to come after us. And what interests me as a crime writer is, is the kind of con- connectivity between them. And in my crime novels, I do try and have a case from the past and a case in the present that at some point will interlink. There'll be a connection between them. So that I can show how Edinburgh has changed, how Scotland has changed, how politics has changed, how society has changed, social mores, uh, all of that. I can talk about the way that we as human beings have changed
0: by just having two crimes in two separate time scales. So in terms of your research, when you're, have you ever had a moment where you've finished the first draft and you thought, hang on a minute, I need to research this, and then has, has there ever been a point where it's actually led to you having to rewrite a book in a major way?
1: Oh, well, not a major way, not a major way, but part of that I think is probably because I don't do the research until after the second draft, and by then I know what I need to know. So if I did all the research before I started writing the book, I would maybe end up going down some kind of wrong passageway that I would would struggle to get back from but I mean I've just I've recently finished the second draft of the new book it's going to come out in October and now I've got a list of things I need to know to do with Rebus's health to do with bits of Edinburgh to do with police procedure now I can go and talk to the people I need to talk to and make sure those things are right before it goes to the publisher more challenging for me is when I show the book to my wife because she will then go down the margins and she'll start putting in huge big question marks. You know, a single sheet of A4, full page of writing, and nothing down the margin except a huge question mark. And that just I break it. You know, I just go, Oh my god, what is it she's not getting here? Is it the whole book? Is it the whole character? Is it is it what is it the sense is it the sense of place? Is it the structure? Is it the tone? What is it that she's not getting? And That manuscript is waiting for me back at home. The second draft has been printed off. She's read it. I've not looked at the marginalia. That's sitting waiting for me back in the house. So tomorrow morning, thank you very much. Once I've enjoyed your humorous night, I will go back and start the third, well, start the preparatory work towards a third draft.
0: What is the, in terms of, do you enjoy writing? Do you actually, because this is something that I've found fascinating. I've just been, um, only the second time ever. I've, I've done various, books and editing them but I've never I've any, this is only my second time that I've written a full book and I've, it's non-fiction but I found it agonising I fucking loved writing the book mm. but then once people said now it has to make sense so I love the bah, 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 and I found it inc- and then I've got in contact with other people I know who are authors both of fiction and non-fiction and nearly everyone I've spoken to seems to absolutely hate you know they're full-time authors mm. they seem to find it quite agonising um Iris
1: Murdoch once said, and I've got it pinned above my um, uh, desk at home. She once said, "Every novel is the wreckage of a perfect idea." Now I can't talk for nonfiction. I don't think I could write nonfiction, but it's true. When you get the idea for the book, it's pristine, it's crystalline. You know, it, it's going to be brilliant. That the theme is going to be sharp. The presentation is going to be sharp. It's going to be the greatest book ever written. Brilliant. You start writing it. And it starts to crumble in front of you. You know, it's, it's like blancmange suddenly. You thought you were building a castle, and you're building something made of blancmange. And, and the book says, I've got, an, I've got a different idea. You thought it was going here. It's actually going to go over here. We're going to go this direction now. And what I've learned is, go with that. The book, there's a kind of, there's a secret structure to the narrative, the arc of the narrative, that the book knows, but I don't. And sometimes it's only after the book is published. A couple of books ago, two books ago, a friend of mine said, he read, I've known him since school days, he said, oh, this is a book about your kids leaving home. And when I looked at it, the book was full of father and child, or surrogate father, surrogate child relationships. Lots of them, at least half a dozen. And it was written at a time when both my sons had left home, and you're starting to think, was I a good enough dad? Would I do things differently if I went back? Have I prepared them for the world? All these kind of things that are in your head, subconsciously, went onto the page conscious, in a kind of conscious fashion for other readers. I couldn't see them, but readers could see them. And that's really interesting. I thought the book was about something. It was actually about something else, a deep structure, a deeper level. So the book's got an idea where it wants to go. The book's got an idea of what it's about. But I don't know that until the very, very end of the process mm. and sometimes long after the book has been published.
0: The tenacity is the thing. I think that's what I've discovered, is 3,000 word pieces, fine. 80,000 word pieces, I'm too much of a flibbity-jibber. So that's what I find interesting, is how did you find... Have you improved how... have I mean, just the practice of, of, of writing, that ability to go, hang on a minute, I can't go off on that tangent because I have to deliver this to the reader. This is where the momentum that I wow. need.
1: I mean... I'm not a literary novelist. I'm a, I'm a crime fiction novelist. I'm a commercial fiction novelist. So what I've got to try and do is, 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 is walk this tightrope. I want each book to be as good as it possibly can be. Each book to be better than the book before. I want to, be able to deal with big themes. I want to feel like I'm writing serious fiction. publisher wants something that's going to get to number one. Mm. And readers often want the book to be quite similar to the book before. You know, I've got the same character... They're all written about the same city. They're all crime fiction. Is usually a murder at the start, so there are there are there are limitations there. There are kind of structures inbuilt, hardwired. Um, but I like that, and I like the fact that with the crime novel, which is a pretty s- serious structure—crime investigation, resolution, beginning, middle, and end—within that you can do a hell of a lot, and you can talk about big themes. You can talk about big moral issues, big questions. You can do all of that. Um, but some people would find it constraining. They would find it constraining. The first draft, to get back to someone you asked earlier, I find exciting because I don't know where the book's going to go. I've not done much of a plan beforehand. So I'm sitting there, I know as little as my cop. I've got a cop at the start. Oh, there's a murder. Who did it? I've no idea. Let's introduce some characters. Who's that? Did they connect to that person? Were they there that night when that happened? I don't know, maybe find out later on. Two thirds of the way through the first draft, I suddenly go, aha, it was you. I don't know who the killer is. It was you because of X, Y, and Z. And then second and third drafts are me making it look as though it was always meant to happen. Mm. But there's an awful lot of accidental stuff in there. There's a lot of accident. And sometimes the book will say, let's go on this tangent here. This character you thought was interesting, let's get rid of them. They're not interesting. This minor character, they're really interesting. So let's follow them. And I love that. I love that. And within that quite hardwired structure of the crime novel, um, I've never felt there's stuff I can't do and if I got an idea for a book that couldn't be a crime novel I would write that book but all the things I've wanted to explore about the world all the things I've wanted to explore about contemporary Scotland politics, society, economics the haves and the half-nots big moral questions of good and evil the crime novel's been perfect
0: On Spotify how many people have put up Reba's playlists? I don't know I was just presuming that I'm there must be I, just, just I was suddenly thinking I bet that's part of the game there, because that seems to be so There wonderful. is a Rebus
1: playlist on my website I think so if you right. go to theanrankin.net I think I've put together a Rebus playlist and this new book, the one that comes out in October is quite unusual because the title doesn't come from a song I think the last five or six or seven books the titles have all come from songs this one's going to be called In a House of Lies which should be a song Maybe I'll get in touch with some music mu- musician mates and see if they'll do it for me. Um, but it just, I just—I gave my publisher half a dozen titles, and the one they really liked was *In a House of Lies*. And I thought, okay, I had no idea why it would be called *House of Lies*, but the plot told me that eventually.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the, uh we were t- in terms of the genre of crime fiction. How has it changed since you began? We were talking before about science fiction and horror. In terms of, I, I would say the critical approach to it, or how you are... I'm just wondering, I don't know, but it seems to me that, for instance, things like the work of Raymond Chandler, there was a point where, not really it came back into fashion, but it seemed to get re-read beyond those people who admired and already respected it.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I started off, I mean, 87 was the first rebus novel. Um, You know, crime fiction in the UK was basically Ruth Rendell Rendell and and P.D. James. And behind them, people like Colin Dexter and Reginald Hill. Um, and then suddenly these young Turks started arriving. It was me and Val McDermott and a bunch of other writers who partly looked at, at film and TV for their inspiration, partly looked across to America, so the books were gritty and urban and noir. Um, there weren't the kind of classical English whodunits with kind of spinsters investigating poisonings in churches. They were much more about kind of what was happening on the housing estates. Um, they were quite left-wing um, and, and they were just, they felt kind of fresher and a bit exciting and a bit challenging. Um, in Scotland there was no tradition of the crime novel per se, we had no Agatha Christie. Um, and so there was a freedom to, to, to invent or to reinvent the crime novel because we didn't feel we had to write in any kind of specific. Tradition, but now when you look around in Scotland, it's, it seems like a very Catholic with a small C kind of genre because you've got you know cozy crime fiction, hard-boiled psychological, historical, crime novel set in the future, all kinds of stuff is there because there's no model. There's no model. There's a freedom to make your own model. Um, so how's it changed? I mean, it keeps changing. I mean, you know, cops used to be the thing. It was all professional cops, and now it's much more um, suburban noir and and domestic noir. So it's it's people fairly ordinary people in fairly ordinary situations but they don't know who to trust. So your best friend is, is, is out to get you or your spouse is out to get you. I mean gone girl has quite a lot to answer for in this in this uh, category. Girl on a train has continued that trend um, Before no I cops. sleep was that the, uh, yep SJ yeah. Watson yep yep same kind of thing you know unreliable narrators. All these books are filled with unreliable behind your eyes Sarah Pinborough last year was a huge hit. Similar thing, unreliable narrator, you don't know exactly who you can trust or where you are. But in these books, very few if any cops, whereas I've always been fascinated by the cop. The cop to me, the detective, is, is, a, is, is a, a believable way of accessing society from the top to the bottom. A journalist could do it, but a journalist, people will slam doors in their faces. It doesn't happen so much if you're a detective. So My Detective Rebus allows me to, to look at the politicians and the CEOs and the drug addicts and the, the, the prostitutes and the disaffected and disillusioned and the disenfranchised, all the way from the top to the bottom, with one character. He can move between these worlds, and I like that. That's what I've always wanted to do in my fiction. So the kind of domestic noir, the, the, the twisty book where halfway through you suddenly go, oh my god, I thought you were the good person, you're actually the bad person, I thought you were dead, you're actually alive. I don't go in for the big twist. I, I, don't, I can't do the Hollywood hook, mm. you know. I can't do the elevator pitch with my books. An elevator pitch is like one of your shows for me. You know, it just keeps on going <laughs> because I'm enjoying it so much. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me your books about in six words, Ian. I can't.
0: What, um, have you ever had a moment where you... Have you ever gone off crime fiction? Have you ever thought, you know what, I don't <laughs> want to write another one or because you see you, you read a lot as well I mean you read within it I know you read very broadly but you mm. also read within that genre it seems something that you still kind of love quite I mean well,
1: when I when know? I'm reading Robin I would I, I mostly read possibly I mostly read non-crime I read a lot of literary fiction modern fiction historical fiction you know like Dickens I'll go back and read Dickens again or a dance the music of time out Nepal I'll go and read that um and if you ask me my five favorite books, a lot of them wouldn't necessarily be recognized as crime novels, though I think they are. I think Bleak House is a great crime novel. Jacqueline Hyde is a great crime novel.
0: In some ways Miss Jim Brodie is a great crime novel. Jacqueline Hyde, when I first read that, I got such a shock in the fact that I hadn't realized I only read it about 10 years ago. And I'd never realised that for the reader, it's a totally different experience to every single adaptation. Yeah, not like a film at all. It's a twist. The twist is, oh my God, Mr Hyde was Jackal. And of course, in all of the films, we know that from the outset. And it's also quite
1: a postmodernist book because it starts off with different people's interpretations of what's actually been going on. And only at the end do you get the confession of Henry Jekyll. Until then, it's been other people's, oh, I I saw somebody killing somebody. It was this guy that lives with them it's his mate. It's his homosexual lover. Who knows who Hyde is supposed to be? Um, and at the end, you suddenly get the and you go ah. If you're a reader and you're reading it for the first time, you go ah. It was him all along. Which now, of course, with the transformation scene, everybody knows from all the films is a tough act to pull off. But it was a hugely important book to me as a crime writer. See, I didn't read crime fiction when I was young. I wasn't. I mean, I, I read everything but crime fiction. I watched crime on TV. I watched crime movies, but I didn't read it. Um, and I came to the crime novel in a kind of circuitous fashion or an elliptical fashion while trying to A. rewrite Jekyll and Hyde for, for the modern day reader that set it in Edinburgh so Rebus in the first book is you're meant to think he may be the killer so that's a Jekyll and Hyde thing and it turns out the killer is somebody who almost was his blood brother during their um, army years so that's again kind a of Jekyll and Hyde they're almost part of the same person or Cain and Abel I suppose um, so I came at it through that and through Muriel Spark and Miss Jean Brodie and these kind of people who are complex characters who may be forces for good or evil, because we all have within us natures that allow us to be both. So I didn't come from having... I'm the only crime writer I know who wasn't a fan of the crime novel before they started writing stuff. And it was only after the first book was published and went into the crime section of the bookshops that I thought, shit, I better start
0: reading this stuff. Who do you is? Is there any book that you've reread more than any other? Is there a certain comfort book that you return to? Yeah, but you'll
1: hate me for this. Oh. Jilly Cooper, Rivals.
0: Oh, really? Yeah, which is
1: about the. It's it's a behind the scenes book about the TV industry, and I used to read it every summer. I've read that a lot. I've read Clockwork Orange quite a lot, but that was mostly my teenage years. That was a big influence.
0: See, but, Jilly Cooper's A Clockwork Orange would be fantastic. Wouldn't I mean, you that, think? That would have been yeah. Set a little bit more maybe the world of or polar. Anthony or
1: Burgess's Rivals. Maybe I just—I mean, Jilly Cooper. I mean, you know, the puns are dreadful. The characters are kind of cartoonish, but it's just compulsive. And I did learn a lot about television from reading that book, actually.
0: And another thing that I like about the crime fiction is it seems that you have, as writers, the most fun when things like the Harrogate Crime Festival. Because sometimes when I've been at literary festivals everyone seems quite insular they all just sit in their own table in the green room and then someone has to lead them to the venue because they don't really know what to do because they're not that used to being out and all of those mm. whereas everything that I've ever heard well, I was up in Harrogate doing a festival about two months after they'd had the crime and all the people who'd worked on that just said "Ah, oh, it's just great everyone's just sitting in the you know in the bar of the hotel everyone's got stories and
1: yeah I mean it's true and it's always been true and I think it partly well it's, there's two I mean let's go back to Jekyll and Hyde again. I mean, writers don't become writers because they're gregarious, outgoing people. They're quite shy, insular people. They're like me. You know, at high school, they wanted to go home, sit in their bedroom, listen to Pink Floyd and write poetry. And then somehow, when they get a book published, you have to go into the world and talk about it. And you go, that's not what I got into this game for. Mm. But eventually, if you stick around long enough, you learn that that's what you have to do. So that's one thing, is that we're kind of reluctant, outgoing people. But then... The literary community doesn't want us. The Booker Prize doesn't want us. So we have our own festivals and we help each other out. And we're like the kids, we're the gang from the wrong side of the tracks, you know? So the kind of literary authors are over that side of the tracks at the private school and we're over here this side of the tracks with fish and chip shops um, and the kind of bucky, you know, a buck fast in our back pocket. And we've got our own wee festival and we all help each other out as much as possible. We all read each other's books. And when we get together, we, do, we just close the bar. We'll just be at the bar from it opens till it closes. And there's never enough staff. They, there's, I've never been to any festival that's had enough bar staff for the number of crime writers and fans all want to hang out together. And it's, you know, there'll be Lee child, will be there. And, you know, but like these mega million selling authors just hanging around, fans are chatting to them. They're not insular, they're not shy. Because it is commercial fiction. And we, we know that we are nothing unless we're selling books. We're not winning prizes. We're not getting Arts Council grants. So we need our audience. And we love our audience because they keep us alive. They keep us in Buckfast.
0: So that's like comedians. We know we're the lowest art. So let's... Uh, uh, I mean, that, is it, a... it interesting
1: how many comedians write books? And how many writers have come from comedy? I mean, Mark Billingham's yeah. a classic case in point, you know. Um, but there's that connectivity, I think because it is a performing art in some ways, and because writers, to sell a book, have to go on stage and talk for 45 minutes. You know, a different city every day and talk for 45 minutes and take questions. And if you're not entertaining people, they're going to walk away and find another writer. So you've, you're almost, you've got to have that, the craft of the stand-up is important.
0: One of my favourite... Uh... Readers, in fact, when you, because some writers you watch and you, you realise they shouldn't be reading their own work, they can chat about it. But A.L. Kennedy, I think, is one of the, I remember the first time. And she could I do stand up. And she did stand up as well. It was like, I couldn't tell. She was describing what was going to happen in this particular short story. Um, and then suddenly I went, oh, hang on a minute, she's in the story now. And that was, it's you know, to see that uh, was. Well, uh, sorry, go on. I hate
1: reading my stuff out. Uh. I'd, I'd rather do anything else. When people say, oh, "Are you going to read from the book?" No. I mean, for two reasons. I mean, one, it's crime fiction, so if I take anything except the opening of the book, I'm going to have to explain everything that's happened beforehand before we get to this scene. And two, it's all dialogue, and I can't do different voices. You know, T. S. Eliot he do the police in different voices, but I can't do it. You know, I'm not an actor. I can't do different voices. I can just do mine. So I don't. When people say, "You're going to do reading?" No. I'll just I'll just stand up and I'll pontificate for forty-five minutes and then take questions.
0: That's one of the weird. I don't know if you've ever seen DC have done a series of uh, animations of some of the big books, including Watchmen. I'm sure much to the, the annoyance of Alan Moore, and they just have one bloke who does all the voices. So it's almost just frame by frame. Yeah, it's weird. and then the guy does the, you know the male and the female, and yeah, it, it doesn't work. I, one of the ones that I found interesting in terms of an incident that happened was a while ago, probably about five or six years, maybe more. You, you said, I don't know if it was at a crime festival, you talked about the fact you found it fascinating, that I hope you get this right, that um, the most kind of grotesque murders of women uh, in books were normally from female authors. Was that roughly what you said? It was, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, uh, it, was, it was a bit
1: more detailed than that. I mean, at that time, looking at the top ten bestsellers in the UK, it seemed to me that if you were a female author, to get in the top ten, it helped if you were writing quite violent books. Get it, Patsy Cornwell. That kind of stuff. If you were a male author and you wanted to get in the top ten, it helped if you didn't. That was then. Things have probably changed.
0: That's, but what I liked about that was that it seemed that certain newspapers were very keen to create some kind of hoo-ha and of umbrage. Course. And then it turned out that everyone, the authors that rung up went, yeah, yeah, no, that's true. No, no, we were talking about that the other week. And I, that's a lovely moment yeah. where someone goes, brilliant, we can create this, this little fire firestorm. Oh, no, everyone's absolutely fine with it.
1: But in fact, it's come back again because of this new prize being announced, which is for crime fiction that doesn't have women as the victims. It doesn't have violence against women in the books. And, and a lot of authors have said, well, wait a minute, you know, that's, that is, is, is completely reductive because, you know, vi- there is violence against women in the world. We need to talk about it. You can't pretend it doesn't happen. So we need to talk about it in our books and we do it well, do it well. Don't just have a kind of a body on a slab, but actually discuss them as a real human being uh, and talk about the life they had before that happened and why it happened. And the kind of shock waves that go with a murder, because murder is still the staple of crime fiction, because it is still a, it's a taking away of something unique and irreplaceable from the world. Somebody steals your stuff, you can replace it. Somebody burns down your house, you can get a new house. But taking away a human life, and you don't know what you don't know what that human life was capable of. You know, mm. um, you don't know what was in the future of that person. So it's an extraordinarily shocking thing, which is why crime fiction fixes on it. because It makes us think about, oh my God. What if that happened to us? Or what if that was our family? Or what if... You know, why does this happen? Why do we human beings keep doing these terrible things? Why do we? Why does history keep repeating itself? In the words of Shirley Bassey. The...
0: Um, just one more, because I've got to go on in a minute. You've got to go on in a minute. The, uh, but... We were also talking before about Anthony Burgess, and you said you wanted to talk about one of your favourite novels was uh, Well, yeah, yeah,
1: well, originally I thought we were going to talk about my five favourite novels, and I was going to go through Jekyll and we'll Hyde. we'll do that one, no, do, no, no. do
0: The Fringe. I was going to go do I was going to
1: go Jekyll and Hyde, I was going to do Jim Brodie, I was going to do Clockwork Orange, Bleak House, and probably Laidlaw by Willie Marcovani or something.
0: So it's lucky we didn't do it. It would have taken yeah, no time at all. I know, would have been a very I
1: short but, I would have, but, but no, there'd have been a lovely elegance to it. there been an elegant lead-up to it, and then it, it was all segueing nicely. Don't worry about it. But yeah, no, A Clockwork Orange, because I was like 13, 14, and suddenly I was A Clockwork Orange. Came to the cinema screens, oh, it's gone again. And I wasn't 18, so I couldn't go and see it anyway. But, um, several things. I mean, one was that it was about violence. It was about the kind of Doc Martin type bover boys that I knew, 73, 74, in the kind of working class village where I grew up. Skinheads and sweatheads and Harrington jackets and... Um, Doc Martens, it was about that kind of culture but it was written in a very elegant way it was a beautifully written book, it was a very structured book and it was a very poetic book uh, very postmodernist in its use of language and, and, and stuff um, and and I couldn't see it, I wasn't old enough to go and see it at the cinema, I wasn't 18 but nobody stopped me reading the book so from a very young age I got the feeling that, that fiction literature was something really exciting that I could get access to I couldn't see The Godfather at the cinema, I could read the book. I couldn't see um, French Connection, I, could re- I couldn't see The Exorcist, I could read the book. Nobody stopped me reading those books. And so fiction for me has always had that bloody excitement about it. And it's never stopped, it's never stopped. But it did kind of start with the Copper recording. And I've still got my copy that a mate lent me at school, and it was his big brother's copy, and his name's still in the front of it, and I still uh, he's got to get it back at some point.
0: I love that, the contraband, that sense of things that... You really feel that you shouldn't be allowed to read, but you are. Um, Thanks very much. What's your new book called, by the way? You were going to... I did tell you, didn't I? Yeah, Uh, it was called... called, um, You revealed it... In a a House of Lies. In a House of Lies. Oh, and one other thing. You said that when you were on a good read, uh, the book you recommended, the other two people uh, dismissed it and said it was rubbish, and I think it sounds fantastic. What was that? Uh,
1: That was The Islanders by Pascal Garnier.
0: Because you're worth it. Right, that's what I'm going to read next. The... uh We brought in a new series of tiered rewards, including behind-the-scenes stuff, live YouTube Q&As, and a book club with Robin, Josie, and special guests. I am Robin, by the way, but it's the way it's scripted here. Anyway, geek tickets, tote bags, and be a guest on Book Shambles. That is also another possibility. So go to patreon.com forward slash bookshambles or cosmicshambles.com. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Joseph Robin's book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.